Tony's.
Listening to CITR Radio, FM 102, Cable 88.5, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And it's time right now for the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show. You just heard right there excerpts from the Hot Tub versus JSonic mixtape featuring Hot Tub. Yes, and you hear me dropping it. What was I dropping? Not a CD cover, but an actual cassette cover. A cassette that was handed to me by Hot Tub in Austin, Texas. Hot Tub are from Oakland, California, and you heard a bit of Hot Tubby mixtaping action. Hot Tub versus JSonic from the Hot Tub cassette tape. Thank you, Hot Tub. And today on the Nardwar to Human Serviette radio show, we have interviews coming up with rapper Danny Brown and Young Jeezy. But first, we're joined by a guest in the studio right now. Uh, hello, are you there? Uh, yes, I'm sitting across from you here. Who are you? Uh, David Spanner. I've just written a book called Shoot It about... Uh independent film around the world. And you also wrote a book called Dreaming in the Rain as well. Yes, which is certainly about Vancouver. And today, speaking of raining and Vancouver and the University of British Columbia, Canada, a special event is happening, David. Perhaps you could like to tell the people about that. Yeah, the book I've written is sort of a, a critique of the whole Hollywood studio system. And I did interviews with all, all, everyone from Mike Lee to Miranda July to filmmakers all over Canada and, and, and a lot of the great European filmmakers, the independent people who are rising up kind of in opposition to this whole corporate studio system. And so I've been, the book came out recently, it's called Shoot It, and tonight we're doing an event at the Chan Center at UBC, and I I'm really actually feel gratified to have the, you know, the Tom Schult and Bruce Sweeney uh, working with me at this event in support of the book. I mean, Bruce Sweeney is, is and, and Tom Shoulder as good as it gets as far as Canadian film goes. Bruce Sweeney is a wonderful independent film director, and uh, Tom Schultz, uh, an outstanding actor, as well as a prof at UBC. And um, tonight, I, I'm going to be reading from my book, and also uh, Bruce Sweeney's first film, which was made at UBC and won the award at the Toronto Film Festival as the best Canadian feature, Live Bait, Great, witty, anti-romantic comedy starring the moderator of the event, Tom Schultz. That is going to, uh, we're going to be doing that at 7 o'clock at the Chan Centre. In Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. That is the place we're both from. So, David Spanner, 
You wrote this book, Shoot It, but I want to go back to your other book, Dreaming in the Rain, How Vancouver Became Hollywood North, and then switch a little bit by right off the bat asking you something that I asked you before about how Vancouver and punk rock and Vancouver and hippiedom almost are like number two and three. In other words, number one for punk rock was England, number two was New York, but number three could have been Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and then to go way back, you said that San Francisco Francisco, number one for hippiedom, number two was Vancouver for hippiedom. Well, yeah, I, I think that's probably true. You know, I think, I, I'm not sure with punk rock, you also got Los Angeles in there, which was huge. Um, but, you know, I think the thing is with Vancouver, Vancouver's always been real good at doing subcultures. You know, I mean, it goes back to the 1930s when there was a huge kind of, oh, a movement here, a political movement during the Depression, and more volunteers left from Vancouver to go to Spain to fight fascism than from any city in North America except New York. And it's continued through the years. There was a beat movement here in the 50s and 60s. And then, of course, in the late 60s, the flowering of the counterculture was huge here, probably the, may, maybe the largest anywhere next to San Francisco. And then, of course, in the late 70s, you had... Um, the explosion of, of punk everywhere, and Vancouver had a, a legendary scene within that movement. Interesting thing with both the counterculture and the punk scenes is that while they're kind of recognized in the international underground, quite often in Vancouver itself, uh, most people don't even know they're going on. But, you know, on top of that, I want to add a third thing, which is the independent film movement here. In the, and it's that started in the well, 1990s. Your book is all about, and of yeah, that I... started in the 1990s. And see, the interesting thing is I bet was involved in all these things. I was involved in the Yippies, which was, you know, sort of activist uh, uh, part of the, of the counterculture here in the early 1970s. And then later I managed the subhumans in the punk scene. And then I happened to be fortunate enough to be writing about film in the di local daily press when you know, there was the emergence of a wonderful uh, independent film scene in Vancouver. Uh, and it actually started at UBC in the mid-1990s, the West Coast Wave, featuring people like Bruce Sweeney, whose film will be screening tonight at 7 o'clock, uh, and other Vancouver filmmakers like Lynn Stopkowicz and Mina Sham. And interesting enough, uh, Mina Shum was a punk rocker who had gone as a, as, a, as a kid to subhuman gigs. Lynn had been a punk in Montreal. So there's a real crossover between the independent filmmaking and punk rock. But anyway, the point being, though, is that Vancouver also has had, uh, you know, a, a great independent film movement, um, especially in the in the 90s and, and early part of the of the 21st century. So and the thing that all of these have in common, whether we're talking about the hippie counterculture or punk rock or, you know, the ind independent film is they're all they all operate in opposition to the corp corporate culture. They all realize that corporate culture makes everything dead, that kills everything, makes everything, uh, dumbs down everything. And, and that, you know, the, the focus of the book is on film uh, all over the world. The, I, I focus on seven different countries and their film cultures and how they survive when the studio system dominates their screens. How do local film cultures survive? I look at seven different countries, including Canada and the Vancouver scene, but also look at... Uh, uh, the U.S. and England and Romania and Korea. Um, and, and the thing that's interesting with all of this is that, you know, these things are not that different in a way. For, for example, I think the independent filmmakers' relationship to the major studios isn't that different than the independent musicians' relationship to the major labels. Back to 
the musicians, though, for punk rock, I kind of said Vancouver was number three, and I kind of put England at number one. Okay, it could be New York at number one, or it could be England at number one. You know, they tie, basically. And then number two for punk, well, let's put Los Angeles and Vancouver together. So it's kind of like two and West three. Because, yeah, it's West Coast sort of thing. But do you believe that, though? Like, the Vancouver, was there really number three, number four? Well, punk you know, uh, it's, uh, I mean, it's hard to put a, a number on it, but I think what's interesting with Vancouver in terms of England is obviously England was number one in the early days of punk. And I think that Vancouver, the Vancouver punk scene was more like the British punk scene than any other North American scene. And what I mean by that is that when when punk broke, it was really the, the huge role models were like, you know, the Sex Pistols and the Clash and the Damned and, and, and other British bands. And although the American scenes were heavily influenced that, they... You know, they didn't quite get it the way we did. I mean, we were part of the British Commonwealth. We grew up with the Queen's picture on the wall. We kind of could really, you know, understand that. And the only other Canadian scene that would could compete with us on that level was Toronto. But they were so obsessed with being New York that they had no real interest in that the whole British thing. So because of that, the Vancouver bands and their style, the style of music, even the names they gave themselves and, and the look and everything else was more like the original British Sex Pistols clash scene than any other scene in North America. So I would say that in that sense, in that first wave of punk that was heavily influenced by England, Vancouver might have been, you know, I mean, it was certainly one of the strongest scenes that emerged with bands like the Subhumans and DOA and the Rabbit and, and other bands. Well, what about the hippies and the yippies and Vancouver being number two after San Francisco? This is something that you told me before, which I was quite surprised by. I didn't realize Vancouver was like number two after San Francisco. Well, I, I think the thing is with the, the hip counterculture, that was huge. The capital of that was really the West Coast of North America. You know, whereas you could talk about like with punk, you could talk about New York and England and whatnot. With the hip counterculture, it was clearly the west coast of north america was the was the center of it and and you know people mostly talk about san francisco when they're talking about the counterculture but you know um it also included vancouver los angeles had a huge counterculture areas like uh venice beach laurel canyon seattle around the university district i mean you could go right down the coast it was a huge like in the uh, you know I would say from the late 60s to the mid-70s, it, it, it was huge right up and down the coast. To me, the, the beginning of the end, or when you knew the counterculture was over, when a, a rebellious kid in high school started, started calling himself or herself a punk rather than a hippie. And that happened maybe 77, 78. And that was kind of the moment when you knew that... The hip counterculture was over, and it had been supplanted by the punk counterculture. Well, what about the yippies, though, and the yippies invading Bellingham? Well, you know, the yippies, I, I was in the yippies. The yippies were the political... Mo the funny thing, I'll tell you a funny thing about the yippies, is that uh, two Vancouver institutions were founded the same year. The Vancouver Yippies and the Vancouver Canucks. The difference was the, uh, the Canucks were uh, better at inciting riots. Baboom. <laughs> but, but the thing was, though, uh, no, the yippies... Uh, and what about the invasion of Bellingham? No, the, this was the, quite the, interesting, the wasn't it? The yippies, it? okay, they were, the yippies were... Um, the idea of the yippie was that uh, social change could be fun, social change could be funny. Uh, I mean, just for example, the New York yippies who started the whole thing went to the stock exchange there and threw a bunch of money down from the gallery and, and all these uh, guys in suits, these stockbrokers were running around scrambling for dollar bills just to show how ridiculous the whole system is. I mean, uh, the yippie was 
was famed for doing those kind of pranks and and seeing the humor and the fun in social change and and just as we were talking about punk and we were talking about hippies the uh, yippie movement really caught on in Vancouver probably next to New York it may have been the the most creative creative group and there were a number of actions throughout the early 70s including um the Gastown smoke in um the invasion of of America after Nixon, Rich, President Richard Nixon invaded Cambodia. what happened Cambodia. there? Because nowadays that wouldn't work too well, would it? Uh, I think nowadays, uh, yeah, uh, you know, I don't know if you would su- survive too easily if you just sort of went down, had a rally at the Peace Arch, and stormed across the border into Blaine. You know, nowadays... Um, but that rally at the Peace Arch at Blaine, like Paul Robeson, that's incredible what happened there. You're talking the 1950s. That one I'm talking about. Well, you know, and that ties back to the second book as well. I mean, what happened there was... It's just pretty funny that Paul Robeson was told by the states he's not allowed to leave the states. Isn't it usually you're kicked out of the country, but he was told he's not allowed to leave the country? Well, yeah, that's true. I think that there was uh, that happened to a number of people in the early 50s. And, and this sort of ties in with with the whole history of the studio system, too. I mean, what happened was, after the Second World War, there there was, you know, the Cold War, which has kind of been billed as a war against the Soviet Union and, and the Eastern Bloc allies, its, its Eastern Bloc allies, was really a, a war against the internal domestic left in the U.S. And, and whether it was Paul Robeson or the Hollywood leftists that were blacklisted, it, they, they went after them in the late 40s and 1950s. And what happened with Robeson is he wasn't allowed to, uh, to do that, and so they had a concert uh, at the Peace Arch in which people organized in Vancouver and people organized in Seattle, and they came together. right at the border. Right at the border from two, both sides uh, the audience came to watch him sing at the border. It's a legendary concert, I think, like 1952, something like that. And, um, you know, so... Well, you talk about Canada being free, but what about Lenny Bruce? He wasn't too free in Canada, right? Uh, yeah, I don't know if I would say Canada's ever been particularly free, but I would say that Lenny Bruce... Yeah, he came to Vancouver in the mid-60s, and for people who aren't familiar with him, he was this real groundbreaking comic uh, who played clubs all over uh, the U.S. in in the uh, early 1960s and broke all sorts of, you know, pushed the envelope. And and Lenny Bruce came to Vancouver in the mid-1960s, and he was, you know, started playing the cave, and shortly into his run, like, the police came down there, and he was just... It was canceled. You know, the censor canceled him and an, another club tried to pick it up, but he was canceled there and he and he left Vancouver. So Vancouver was a very, very conservative place in the 1960s. As a matter of fact, one of the, the first Canadian independent filmmaker, English language, it was went to UBC in the early 1960s by the name of Larry Kent, showed a movie at UBC called Bitter Ash that he made at UBC for a few thousand dollars. Uh, it was about sort of the bohemian scene around Vancouver, the beat scene in the in the early '60s, and Larry Kent's movie was banned by the BC censor. Um, there was some kind of ruling where it could only play UBC, and uh, it had a very short shelf life. And and uh, but Larry went on to be a legendary independent filmmaker. But so v- B- UBC has had a real long tradition of of. Uh, 
rebel filmmaker. And he had a tradition of getting films banned because he moved to Montreal and did this film Get High, Get Banned. Yeah, he did a what movie called the High. Film, Get High, because that was really good, or High. That yeah, was high. awesome. Yeah, yeah that, that was also uh, banned. Larry Kent, yeah, uh, made a habit of getting banned, it's true. And he had come out of UBC, though. And, I mean, the UBC film tradition is really significant, you know. I mean, Alan King, the great documentary filmmaker, went to UBC. Sterla Gunnarsson is a really, you know, well-known filmmaker now, went to UBC. Larry Kent. Um, and, and then that whole wave I mentioned with Bruce Sweeney and Lynn Stopkowitz and that bunch. And so, I mean, UBC has a great tradition. And that's what we're celebrating tonight. The great UBC independent filmmaking tradition. And again, what's happening tonight, David Spanner, author of Shoot It, Hollywood Inc., and the rising of independent film? Well, what's happening tonight is is the book that I've done, uh, you know, which, like I say, the, the basically what happened is I was working in the daily press uh, covering movies. And if you cover all the movies that are coming out, you can't help but, you know, uh, after a while, you know... Uh, there's just so many bad ones. You can't help but start asking yourself, why are the movies so bad these days? So that was the genesis of this book. And when you start looking at questions like that, quite often you find yourself, you find the answer is tied to corporate power. And, and, and so that took me to the studio system. And, you know, the Warner Brothers, for example, actually were the Warner Brothers at one point. But the studios have evolved into these huge corporate entities. And what I found is as they, the more they got corporate and the more they got global, the worse their movies became. And so the first half of the book looks at the decline of quality of, of Hollywood studio movies. The second half, which is the positive half, looks at the alternative, which is this independent movement that's rising up around the world, especially with digital, access to digital. John Sales, a filmmaker who I interviewed, told me that when he started making independent movies in the early 1980s, there were maybe 30 uh, independent movies made a year in the U.S. 30. Last year, there were 12,000 submissions to Sundance. So digital has changed everything. And so what, what we're doing tonight is I'm, we're going to be talking about this, this, this uprising of, of independent film in the face of corporate studio system. We're going to be talking about that, reading from the book, and I've got these great guests who are as good as a guest in Canadian film. Uh, Bruce Sweeney, the, the independent filmmaker from Vancouver, who started out at UBC, and the actor Tom Schult. And we're gonna, after, after I read from the book, we're going to screen his first film, which is a wonderful uh, anti-romantic comedy called Live Bait which was shot in Vancouver and was a UBC project and won all sorts of awards. We're going to screen that film. Then Bruce Sweeney and myself are going to do a Q&A with, uh, with the audience. So, you know, for anyone who's interested in film or rebel film or rebel culture and, uh, you know, the whole... Uh, you know, what's the state of film these days? It's going to be a very interesting event, and I think. And at 7 p.m. tonight at the Chan 7 Center. 7 p.m. at the Chan Center, and it's free. So, you know, if you want to go out, see a great movie and... Uh, you know, uh, you know it's going to be. A, I think it's going to be a real great event. So, David Spanner, author of Shoot It, Hollywood Inc., and the Rising of Independent Film. Back to punk rock for one moment here. Being manager of the Subhumans, you were involved with setting up some gigs for Black Flag, the Vancouver Black Flag gig, the first one you set up. Well, you know, I, I had a production company. I called it Ed Sullivan Presents, which was true to sort of yippee sort of humor. You know that, so you could put on. On posters, you know, it was called Ed Sullivan Productions, so I could put on posters things like Ed Sullivan Presents the Dead Kennedys. And so 
you know, I was putting on shows like that, and and so I got a call. I'd get a call calls occasionally from American bands that wanted to come up to Vancouver, and so I got this call from California, and you know, it's on the line. It's some Black Flag, so you know, we're not we're a hardcore band from from Los Angeles, and you haven't heard of us, I'm sure. No one really knows, but we're called Black Flag, and and it's true, nobody here had heard of them at that point. They hadn't toured before, and I said, sure, we'll put you in the Smiling Buddha. And, you know, and there was a great hardcore band in town at the time called The Rabid. And so I, I, I booked them with The Rabid. And, it was, you know, it was, it was uh, you know, great. You know, and anyway, so what happens is uh, they come up to Vancouver. Uh, first gig here. And uh, they're staying at someone's house. I can't remember who. But anyway, I went over to see them and gave them a copy of the poster for the gig, which was the next night. And I think it was Greg Ginn. He looks, he looks at it from, from Black Flag. He looks at the poster and says, the rabbit? All the time we thought it was called a rabbit. You know, we ever thought we were playing with some band called The Rabbit. We thought, like, I mean, man, we figured that, like, uh, the hardcore bands up in Vancouver got real wimpy names. I mean, he couldn't believe it, you know. And then later on, you helped organize a tour, I guess a few years later, out east for the Subhumans, and you played Washington, D.C. with Ian Mackay. Yeah, that was, that was a great gig. Also, Brad Brains were on that bill. And um, I, I remember Henry Rollins was just hanging around the scene. Most of us stayed over at Ian Mackay's place, his parents' place, actually. Um, but, you know, there wasn't all that much, uh, wasn't enough room. So uh, Jerry Hanna, our bass player, uh, so, you know, this, this fan... Uh, of of the band offered to put him up for the night. He was a guy who worked, I think, you know, he was working in a fast food place or something. And he offered to put up Jerry. And anyway, the, the fan turned out to be Henry Rollins. And the next day we went over to pick up Jerry and Jerry said, you got to get me out of this place. Uh, I mean, apparently the, the tension between the two well, existed in a pretty intense way. But it was just kind of funny because at the time, this was before Henry Rollins had done Black Flag or anything else. He was just a, a punk rock fan in D.C. and he was putting up one of the subhumans. And that was a pioneering tour he went on. People talk about Black Flag giving out context, but you gave some context to Black Flag, didn't you? Because you guys like toured quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, back in those days, you know, there weren't that many bands that did it, and we would obviously share stuff. I remember, for example, I know when we went through Minneapolis, the the band that opened for us was Husker Du, and they were completely unknown at the time, and afterwards we hung out with them, and, and I gave them a list of all the, you know, clubs and all the contacts that we had, all the, all, everyone, you know, everywhere we were playing on the tour. And then when at the end of the tour, weeks later, when we came up to Calgary, found that they were playing another hotel in Calgary that they had actually gone through the list that I'd given them and booked a tour for themselves. And they were playing at another hotel, and they were completely unknown. And so um, the manager of that hotel came up to us and said, you know, they're, you know, uh, you guys are just doing a night or two. Can you, uh, when you're finished, you want to replace these guys? You're drawing better than them. And, you know, I, these guys are doing nothing here. And, of course, I said, no, we're not going to, you know. They, they had an obligation to... to you know, live up to their agreement with Husker Du, but it, but but the point being, though, it's true that everybody shared contacts in those days, and the contacts were pretty limited. And and the and uh, you know, once you found a club in a city, 
word got around real fast among uh, among uh, the hardcore bands who was willing to to uh, put on a gig in a particular town. And you are David Spanner, author of Shoot It, Hollywood Inc., and The Rising of Independent Film, also the author of Dreaming in the Rain, How Vancouver Became Hollywood North by Northwest, and also you were the manager of the legendary Subhumans from Canada. Did you ever have contact with Subhumans from the UK? Uh, never did, you know, but... Uh I, I did wonder, you know, I mean, this, the, it was, the Canadian subhumans uh, took that name first. Nowadays, you know, with the, with the internet and everything, everyone would know every name of every band, and, and a band probably wouldn't do that. But the the British subhumans kind of uh, uh, adopted the name after uh, the the Canadian band, which was a you know a well known band in Canada and and uh, in the U.S. particularly down the West Coast. So, you know, it, it's a little odd that they would just take the name of an established band. And also, you welcome people in Vancouver. For instance, Jello Biafra was hanging out in Vancouver for a little while, and you snuck him into a Bob Marley gig? Well, I don't know if I actually snuck him in. What happened there is I think the Dead Kennedys were doing a gig. I, 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 I'm trying to remember exactly what the gig was. It may have been a gig with the Subhumans. But anyway, we were all hanging out one night, a bunch of us, including Jello and myself. And uh, someone said, you know, Bob Marley's playing the Pacific Coliseum tonight. And so we said, well, you know, so we headed down there just to see if we could get in. And we're wa- and the, the gig had just started. There was nobody outside except us, maybe about five of us. And we're walking around. We walk around to the back entrance. And Jello's saying to me, you know, why don't you tell them you're the manager of the subhumans and, and get us, maybe we can get in. Just tell them that. Maybe we can get in. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, I mean, you're Jello Biafra. That kind of trumps the manager of the subhumans. But just at that moment, the doors fling open. A bunch of guys... You know, I don't know if they're crew or who they are, but they come uh, out the back doors. They see us standing there and they toss about, you know, 20 backstage passes at us and, and keep walking. So we're standing there. And so we go in. And so we watch this amazing concert, you know, uh, from, from the edge of the stage. Jello Biafra, David Spanner, and the Subhumans backstage at Pacific Coliseum in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, watching Bob Marley. And speaking of watching and standing in, this was something interesting that I learned from your books, David Spanner. Chris Haddock, The X-Files, being a stand-in for Ray Winstone from Quadrophenia, a.k.a. ladies and gentlemen, a fabulous stains guy. Well, you know, Chris Haddock actually was uh, started, it was a musician. Back in those days, he was like a street, you know, Chris Haddock, uh, to those who, the few of you out there who don't know who he is, is sort of a, a great showrunner in, in Vancouver. He was the producer, creator, writer behind Da Vinci's Inquest, and right now he's working on a um, boardwalk, uh, the Boardwalk series with uh, Steve Buscemi, and, and uh, he's one of the writers on that in New York. But anyway, Chris, though, in those days, uh, in the early punk days, was a street musician. Uh, he, you know, you can find him just busking in, in Gastown. And he got on as a, uh, you know, doing stuff around the Fabulous Stains movie. And, you know, he told this one story that was in my first book that uh, Steve Jones. His guitar. Yeah. Was um, And maybe you want to set it up a little bit about this movie, ladies and gentlemen, Fabulous Saints, for people that don't know. Now it's become really, really popular because it's on DVD and everything. But we have members of the Sex Pistols and Clash in sleepy little Vancouver, right? Yeah, there was Steve Jones and Paul Cook and pa- Paul Simonon uh, had all come up to Vancouver to be in this like movie. Like the greatest punk bands of all time. Yeah, at the time upon they were. Vancouver. And they were hanging in Vancouver. I mean, it was funny. They didn't really seem to hang around or anything much, but they were, you know, they were working on this movie. And the movie was about a. a a female punk band and it starred um, Diane Lane 
who was a young actress at the time and sort of went on to considerable fame later as an adult actress. And, uh, you know, it was, a, uh, like I say, a movie about the, uh, a, female punk, a young female punk band. And so there was a certain amount of excitement around that. And uh, I know that there was a story there where Paul Simonon stole a guitar from the prop uh, truck and, and sold it to... You know, and, and the thing that was interesting about that, I heard that story, and or Steve Jones stole it. Yeah, did I say that? Yeah, Steve Jones stole it, and and it was an interesting story. And I thought, well, that's sort of a unique Vancouver story. And then I was down in L.A. a couple of years later, and I pick up a copy of the L.A. Times, an interview with Steve Jones, who lives down there now, and he was going on about how he had literally stole hundreds of guitars in his life. He was a habitual guitar stealer. He would do it from anyone, anywhere, backstage. Uh, at at rehearsals, anytime someone turned their back, he would steal their guitar. So it kind of deflated the Vancouver story a little bit. I mean, it was just kind of something he did. But uh, but he did do that in Vancouver, and and uh, he did sell that. Now, one thing that ties into the movies is the other movie that was shot in Vancouver, British Columbia, can has a big punk connection. Is Out of the Blue that features the pointed sticks, and you have a selection from that. You wanted to read a little bit about Dennis Hopper coming to Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Well, well, what happened with that? That was the first book. But, I mean, what happened there, though, that was interesting, uh, they shot that movie at uh, the Viking Hall uh, on, on East Hastings. They, sh- they shot the live scenes, and it was with the pointed sticks. And it, it, what, that was also, like, about punks in Vancouver. Uh, you know, it was about punks. It was directed by Dennis Hopper. And what happened there, people were getting really tired. Uh, you know, people were getting uptight. There was a lot of confrontation starting to develop between some of the local punks and some of the crew members that had come up from L.A. And it was turning into a kind of a fairly tense scene at Viking Hall. And you can actually see this on YouTube. A clip is on YouTube. If you just type in, like, pointed sticks out of the blue, it actually comes up there. Yeah, it, it was getting fairly intense. And people were, uh, you know, uh, and, and the, so Dennis Hopper gets up there and he starts going on about himself. Now, Dennis Hopper, to those who you don't know, is kind of a legendary figure. He was, like, in Rebel Without a Cause with James Dean. He also... Uh, directed Easy Rider, the great counterculture movie that sort of changed Hollywood for a few years and opened up the studios to making counterculture movies. So he was kind of a legendary alternative figure. But in those days, not too many people... This is the late 70s, and, and it was a bunch of young punks, and a lot of them didn't know who the hell he was. And he gets up there, and he starts going on about how people should cool it. And so the crowd, and I'm... And, uh, you know, this is profanity, folks, just to just to warn you. Uh, the crowd started, a few of them started saying, fuck Hollywood to him, you know. And and he looked kind of puzzled because he's used to being Mr. Alternative. And here's this crowd of punks screaming, fuck Hollywood at him while he's trying to cool out the crowd. And so finally, he realizes what they're saying, you know, and he starts adapting to it and saying, yeah, you're right. You're right. I agree with that. Fuck Hollywood. And then finally, people... But people didn't buy it. They didn't know who Captain America was from Easy Rider. They didn't know him from Rebel Without a Cause. And they just basically continued to drown him out. David Spanner, author of Shoot It, Hollywood, Inc., and The Rising of Independent Film, and also the author of Dreaming in the Rain, How Vancouver Became Hollywood North by Northwest. The movie... 
Bloody Butt Unbowed is all about Vancouver punk rock, and you're in it with a beard burning something. This is something that people can actually go and rent or they can buy, isn't it? Bloody Butt Unbowed. How do you think that movie turned out, and could you describe you in the movie? Because you're right at the beginning. Well, no, I'm a fan of the movie. I think it's it's kind of like Canada's answer, you know, to a decline of Western civilization. You know, it's a... I, no, I, I, Except I think, it's done now. It's a new documentary. Yeah, it's a new documentary. Uh, um, I, no, I, I think it's a, it's a Susan, Suzanne Tabata did a really strong job, and and. But the, you're up there with a beard. Okay, I'll tell you what it was. Okay, this was um, not that long after the, those yippy days. So, you know, when I was sort of doing those kind of political stuff, and um, what it was was we had a rally in Stanley Park. It was uh, on Canada Day. And, and, you know, it was a play on the whole Anarchy in the UK, which was the Sex Pistols song. We called it Anarchy in Canada. And it was with the, 1978, July 1st, with the Subhumans DOA private school. Uh, we did this gig. And basically what happened was it was originally going to be at Lumberman's Arch, but... Uh, the police wouldn't allow us to set up there. The poster had gone all over the city, and, and people were pouring into Lumberman's Arch for this free concert. But we didn't get a permit or anything. We didn't really believe in that. And so when we, people showed up, we realized, you know, it just wasn't going to happen. I, 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 people realized it wasn't going to happen. So what we did is we, we went over to Prospect Point, another part of the park, and somehow some some of the people there, some of the people with, with the punk bands, were able to talk a, a church group that was just ending its picnic into <laughs> giving the punks their permit they had for the day at Prospect Park. And so the the uh, the concert resumed there. And now this, you have to realize, was a, an anti-Canada Day concert, uh, Anarchy in Canada Day. And so what transpired was, um, at the time, there was a big debate over the Canadian Constitution and so somebody jumped on stage, and uh, I mean there was all sorts of pandemonium going on there. And in the in in the process, when I was uh, uh, you know when I was introducing DOA, which I could think, you describe how you look, David Spanner? Well, at that this time. is my you know during the counterculture. You know, it was the latter days of the counterculture. You know, one thing that's interesting, which no, means I, no, you I, had I, a beard, yeah, right? I had yeah. a beard and, lo- and long hair. Yeah, I mean because you have to realize the interesting thing is at the time it sort of seemed at the beginning of punk. Like it was almost like the anti-hippie movement, but in reality, they were two ends of the same generation, and a lot of the values of the more political counterculture people from both of those movements were fairly similar. And a lot of the people, like for example, Joe Strummer and Jello Biafra, and members of the Subhumans, members of DOA, uh, like Joe Joe Keithley, had actually been young youngish hippies before they became punks. So people don't realize that, but there was actually like a period there where those two alternative cultures actually crossed over a bit. Um, anyway, this was the beginning of all of that, and at the time, you know, uh, it was before I was managing the subhumans, but I was, uh, you know, or I was one of the people who organized that outdoor concert. And, uh, you know, it was a wild, legendary concert, really, you know, that introduced, to a large extent, DOA and the subhumans to a lot of people. And it, it's featured prominently in, in uh, the movie Bloodied But Unbowed. You know, it's become a fairly well, you know, fairly legendary. And you're burning something. It. Yeah, well, we're burning the, uh, I think some people were trying to burn a flag. Other people, I, I, at the time, I think it was the proposed constitution. 
that that was being proposed at the time that was being burned on stage there. David Spanner, you've been inspired to write books and books about Vancouver because of some of the bad movies that were made here. One of the movies you cite of being bad or not too exciting was Knights of the City from 1987. Are you sure that that was filmed here? I checked up on that and it features the Fat Boys and Curtis Blow doing rapping and stuff. Do you remember that movie Knights of the City 1987? I believe it was shot here, but I'd really have to check on it again, you know. I'm not really sure. But, I mean, some of the stuff, some of the bad movies that were shot here, my favorite bad Because that movie, was an amazing movie. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I'd actually have to, you know, revisit it because that was done a long time ago. I'd have, to, I'd have to look up. My understanding is it was done here, but I'd have to really revisit because it, it was a long time ago that I, I looked into that. But as far as bad movies, uh, there, my favorite was... Um, I, I think it was Jackie Chan's uh, Bronx movie, you know, in which it was set in the Bronx, uh, this battle in the Bronx, in which uh, they didn't even bother cutting out the mountains. I mean, they're, they're having a street war. It's supposed to be in the Bronx. Vancouver plays the Bronx in it. But in the background... Rumble. Rumble in the Bronx. In the background, there's all these uh, mountains, you know, and this is like... You know, for those of you who don't know out there, New York's got skyscrapers, not mountains. And so this was going on. So there's been a whole legacy of terrible movie start shot in Vancouver, which brings us back to the second book, Shoot It. And the, and the point being is that the studio, the movies that tend to be shot in Vancouver, the movies that are made by the studio system are not very good. And the reason they're not very good, that as the studios have gotten increasingly corporate, they've gotten increasingly global. And what that means in, in real terms is that at one point, movies, uh, when, when, you know, were primarily aimed, studio movies back in the 30s and 40s were primarily aimed at North American audiences. Uh, you know, they aim their movies for Chicago or New York audiences. But today, going global, they're primarily aimed at an international audience of young males between the ages of 15 and 25. And so because of that, uh, a movie now, an action movie, is as likely to open in Japan or South Korea as it is in Los Angeles. And what that means is that they've cre- the English language itself has become kind of a burden to the studio, so they've invented a new language. The new language is... It's a, a language without dialogue. It's a language of car crashes and computer violence and, and other action aimed at youthful male audience. And this is symptomatic of the decline of studio movies. The studios at one point would make movies like Casablanca or Citizen Kane. And, and, as, and so what the book does is look at this decline in detail. What are the, what are the benchmarks of it? How did it happen? And then looks at the alternative, which is, I look at seven different countries and how they cope with the fact that these bad studio movies are dominating their local screens, dominating their local theaters. Uh, and essentially what these these scenes have done, and some of them are remarkable. For example, there's a great independent film movement in Romania, for example, which a lot of people don't know about. They, don't make, they might make ten movies a year in Romania, but half of them win awards at the Cannes Film Festival. It's a remarkable film, film movement. And you can check out David Spanner talking more about this at Shoot It, Hollywood Inc., and the rising of independent film tonight in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, at the Chan Center at 7 p.m. Exactly. And Bruce, Bruce Sweeney will be there live baiting. And I want to ask you about Lynn Stockowicz from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. She, of course, did... 
Oh, she did the film Kissed. Kissed. And I was wondering, she did Kiss, which was an amazing success. What did she turn down? Did she turn down Girl Interrupted? Yeah, I believe she did turn that down. You know, I'll tell you, the interesting thing with Lynn is she came out of Montreal originally, and she was a punk rocker out in Montreal, which I'm sure uh, will impress you know, yourself and some of the other people around here, that Lynn actually was a punk out there, came out here and went to UBC. And the thing that's interesting with Canada, up until the 60s, or even later, you know, that if anyone who wanted to do something in film, uh, whether it's director, actor, anything, would automatically head to L.A. or New York or maybe London. But what happened starting in, it was really in Toronto, in, in the, in the, I, I guess it would be the mid-1980s that a Toronto scene developed with people like Adam McGoyan and, and later Sarah Pauly, Don McKellar, who wanted to make movies and stay in Canada. And then what happened shortly after that was, and this happened at UBC, there was a collection of really talented people who were taking film studies at UBC at the fa- same time, and they started working on a movie called The Grocer's Wife, which was directed by John Poser, who was one of the students. And it, on this film... There were eight future feature filmmakers doing different things, working in crews, that kind of thing, including Bruce Sweeney, Lynn Stopkowicz, Mina Shum. And it was, so it was a remarkable thing, and it happened at UBC. And what that did, which was by – it created a, a West Coast wave of filmmaking, independent filmmaking that, that started here. And that, combined with what had started in Toronto, created a, the independent Canadian film scene. And so – I'm just trying to stress that UBC played a central role in the development of Canadian film and and this scene that emerged. And the film that we're showing tonight, Bruce Sweeney's film Live Bait, was one of the best of that scene, one of the first of that scene, and and, uh, was a, a, a great low budget film. Uh, and you that can check it out that, for free tonight, it's 7 play, p.m. Free tonight. at the Chance Center. A- exactly. And this movie, you know, is a, a wonderful film by Bruce, witty, um, insightful. I'm, st- I'm still curious, though. So why did Lynn turn down Girl Interrupted? And well, was that a good decision to turn uh, that down? Well, that's a good question. You know, you'd have to ask her about w- exactly why. But, uh, I mean, what? I, from my understanding is that after Kissed, what happens in film is that if you make a bit of a splash... Uh, you suddenly get all sorts of offers from the Hol- uh, from Hollywood. Now, Kist played the Toronto film. What Kist was about uh, was the local actress Molly Parker uh, having a sexual relationship with a dead guy. Uh, that was what the movie was. And uh, it was directed by Lynn Stopkowicz. And uh, it, it made an enormous splash when it opened in, in uh, the Toronto Film Festival. And suddenly, Molly Parker actually rode that to, you know, a career in in uh, L.A. She still lives down there. She's done really well since then. Um, Lynn Stofkowicz had a tremendous number of offers, spent quite a bit of time in L.A. right after that. And and she says basically, you know, she just, none of it was very good, and, and, and including Girl Interrupted. She was, a lot of stuff was thrown after, right, immediately after Kissed came out, and she just didn't want to do any of it. So, um so that's what happened, as far as I know. David Spanner, your new book, Shoot It, Hollywood Inc. and the Rising of Independent Film, is really quite interesting with all the detective work you do with it. In your previous book, you also did some detective work as well, where you tracked down Beverly Adland, which is quite amazing. And she is the woman that was with Errol Flynn when he... When he 
Well, yeah, the thing with Errol Flynn is he died Vancouver 1959. At the time, like, he was a massive star. He'd been a huge, huge star, like as big as Brad Pitt is now or something at his peak. And he came up to Vancouver, and he was a complete mess, you know, all sorts of physical problems. He'd been an alcoholic. And he had a young girlfriend, you know, I think she was like 15 or something, Beverly Adland. And and they were, you know... Go, going to clubs all over town for for a few days, and then ultimately on the on the way, on the taxi cab back to the airport, he he got real sick. Uh, the cab driver took him to a doctor, uh, to to the actually apartment of a doctor. It happened to be Glenn Gould, the pianist's uh, cousin, I think it was. Thirteen ten Burnaby Street. Yeah, that was it in, in the West End. It was uh, Gould's. I, th- I believe it was his cousin. Or and, and or maybe it was his uncle, but anyway, he went to a relative of Glenn Gould's, a doctor, and uh, proceeded to collapse there, and uh, and and shortly after that, he died. And uh, yeah, I, d- I did speak with her. You know, I, I, she's uh, and uh, which is she, quite because she didn't do many interviews, and you were able to find her, which was pretty hard, wasn't well, it? Well, yeah. Well, you know, the interesting thing is. What I like to do with this stuff is, I mean, I find a lot of academic writers when they do a, a book is they'll use secondary sources. You know, I mean, they'll not not just academics. A lot of writers do that. Uh, you know, um, they'll they'll just take quotes from already published interviews. But I mean, I think it's important, or for myself anyway, just for my own writing. I like to draw out people with my own questions, my own interviews, and and talk to whenever possible. Uh, and, and that's why with this particular book, I was able to talk to everyone from Miranda July to Gus Van Zant to Mike Lee to Ken Loach to, you know, on and on. I, I got a lot of really great people. And one thing I found out with this book, one of the things I did, because one of the benchmarks in the decline of the studio system was the blacklist when they sent into exile the entire Hollywood left after the Second World War. And those people had made an enormous contribution to the quality of film up until that point. Uh, and so I, I talked with Norma Barsman, who had been a screenwriter then and, and was blacklisted and went into exile in Paris for years. Um, and she was warned by Groucho Marx? Uh, n- not Groucho Marx. I heard that Groucho Marx warned her that she was like in her garden in Los Angeles and Groucho Marx came by and said something like, you better watch out, they're after ya. Well, that may have been. I don't, you know, I, you've got more sources than me, Nardware. I'm not going to dispute anything you ever say. So I think that may have been a possibility, but that's not something she told me. But what happened was, just just to give a little background on the whole blacklist, is that when when talkies were invented in 1927 talking pictures suddenly that's the studios dropped silent pictures overnight it was like sort of when you know cds came in and vinyls were shelved vinyl was shelved it was suddenly like we've got to make talking pictures and they didn't have anyone to write these scripts there was no weekend screenwriting symposiums there were no film studies programs so they went to new york found all these young playwrights and basically shipped them out to la to write movies so, so these ki- you suddenly got these some lefty kid from brooklyn who's sitting around a pool writing features for Warner Brothers. And so what happened was they didn't really question these guys' politics. I mean, the guys who owned the studios didn't particularly care that these guys were socialists or commies or whatever. It wasn't until right after the war there was a massive strike in Hollywood that virtually shut down Hollywood in 1945-46. And at that point, the studio said, a lot of these people that have been writing our movies and directing our movies are supporting this or involved in this. And they, at that point, they embraced the whole McCarthyism and anti-left uh, witch hunts that were happening, and they basically 
fired the entire or, or exiled the entire left in Hollywood, were driven out. Now, Norma Barsman, who I interviewed, who's in her 90s now, was one of those people. And it was really interesting to interview her and talk about her experience uh, as a blacklisted screenwriter. But, you know, I'll tell you one thing that I came up with. You're talking about uh, research and finding things out. Is one Vancouver angle on this, which was really interesting, because, you know, people like yourself and me, you know, have, have researched Vancouver uh, extensively, and you might think that anyone who's done anything of note who was a Vancouverite is is known by now. But in interviewing her, something came up that I'd never known before. Her husband, Ben Barsman, actually was born in Toronto and grew up in Vancouver and went on uh, and then moved down to the to L.A., where he became a really famous screenwriter. He wrote the, a classic epic called El Cid, another movie called The Boy with Green Hair, many, many other... Uh, notable films and he was blacklisted and also went into exile but the the thing that was interesting though you know incredible uh, Vancouver connection to El Cid uh, Ben Barsman grew up in Strathcona and I sort of found out just by interviewing his you know and later he was exiled with Norma to France how was she stranded in France like how was she stranded there I don't get it well here's what happened during the blacklist it was really so kind of. So Groucho a, said, "You're going to be gone soon." Oh, well, it was, was a, a, you know, it was an ugly situation. The blacklist. Here's what happens: is basically they wanted to vilify people. I mean, basically they would, you know, they, they would have these hearings and they would call people to name names. And even if they already had somebody's name, they, just to publicly humiliate you, they would ask you to name other people's names. If you refused to do it, they would put you on a list in which you were now unhirable in in uh, Hollywood. And so. What happened with her and her husband, they knew this was happening to them because they were lefties. And so what they did, what they did is uh, to find work, they, they went over to England and, and then France. And, and uh, through the 50s, 60s and into the 70s, they worked over there. And they weren't the only ones. There was all sorts of well-known people during that period that were, that were exiled. And I was just going to read something. This is sort of when, uh, when Norma Barsman, how she met this is from my book. One of the things I try to do with a book, I don't want to just go on with the ideology and, and the theories of, of independent film. Or, or I also want to talk about the individuals involved in it. So I tell a lot of the personal stories of these people I've mentioned. And this and, is David Spanner reading from Shoot It, Hollywood Inc. and the Rising of Independent Film. And tonight at the Chan Center at UBC, 7 p.m., David will be there. Live bait will be screened for free, and you're going to be discussing all about your book. I'll be reading from it, and I'm going to read a little excerpt from it now. This is Norma Barsman, a blacklisted screenwriter, talking about how she met her equally blacklisted husband, Ben Barsman. On October 31st, Halloween of 1942, I met Ben Barsman at a party at the Rosins, recalls Norma. Bob and Sue Rosin were pillars of the Hollywood left community. Quote, sitting on a fuzzy white chair was a well-tanned guy with a mustache, very handsome, not very tall. We got to talking, and I didn't like the condescending way that Ben had of talking about women when I said I wanted to direct. I kept getting more and more irritated, and by the time we got to the dessert, I was so angry. This guy was attractive to me. I plopped a meringue pie on his face. Ba-boom! I knew he would call me, even though I knew how angry he was, and he did. He said, I might cook something you like. And I said, can I bring a dessert? Oh, not a dessert. I'll bring wine. He had a little apartment on Vista. We had dinner, and we went to bed, and we stayed in bed for about three weeks. So that that was, and they were blacklisted, not for that particularly, you know, for their 
uh, personal life, but for their politics. An excerpt from Shoot It, Hollywood Inc., and the rising of independent film, David Spanner. It's so good you got Sarah Jacobson in there as well. Independent film, like she called out independent film. What is independent film? Could you explain a bit about Sarah Jacobson and also about how she rallied against what people were saying was independent film? Well, I think basically what it is is that independent film, is uh, the definition is altered over the years, but essentially... I mean, are studios relevant at all? Oh, now? yeah. Uh, well, it's funny that you say that because I was at Sundance when I was starting this book and I was at this e- party and, and someone came up to me and said, you better write that book real quick because pretty soon every movie is going to be independent because there's so many indep- movies being made outside the studio system. So the original definition of independent movies was any movie made outside the big Hollywood studio system, any movie made independently of the eight big studios. Over the years, though, I mean... It's come to be a little irrelevant, that definition, because that's like 98% of the movies in the world now. And so for the purposes of the book, you know, I mean, to me, a movie is not particularly uh, notable if it's like made entirely for commercial, say some low budget horror movie that's made outside the studio system, but entirely for commercial purposes. It doesn't have much significance if you're calling that independent and you're also calling a, a Jacobson movie independent or a Mike Lee movie independent. So to for, for the purposes of this book, the definition I use is an independent film is any movie made outside the studio system but is also non-commercial. You know, it's it's driven for non-commercial reasons. And and as far as as, as she goes, you know, Jay, Sarah Jacobson is like, uh, yeah. I mean, she was just one of those great. I mean, and she's not alone. You know, I want to stress that the, every city has this now. Virtually every community has in Vancouver, like uh, Bruce Sweeney and Tom Schultz, the people appearing with me tonight, are every bit as uncompromising as she is. It's 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 a universal thing now. It's almost impossible to know how much of it's being done or what's being done in every city. It's just so it's. Like like music, you know, it's like alternative music. I, I, even someone as knowledgeable as yourself can't keep up with everything that's going on in every town these days. There's great stuff going on that you, that falls through the, your cracks, and and it's the same with with independent film right now. She was she was great, you know, and she died young. She had done a couple of films out of San Francisco. Uh, totally distributed them herself. Her and her mom actually got in a, in a car and just took her movies, like, from city to city, screening them. And, she and uh, you know, she, uh, very sadly, she died young. And, uh, you know, uh, Jello Biafra, who I interviewed for the book, who's also in fil- involved in film as well as, as music, talks a lot about working with her and, and you know, how great it was and the input she, she expected from, wor- from actors and drew on from actors. How hard was it to set up an interview with Jello versus Woody Allen? Well, here's the thing: um, Jello is not wasn't that difficult because he's actually I, I've known Jello for years and years and years. And you helped sneak him into Bob Marley. Too. Uh, yes. Yeah, and I and he I owed I, you for that. And, and we also both put a bumper sticker on Bill Vanderzam's car once together, and we've done things like that. So I know Jello from from years past, you know. Um, and and so Jello wasn't particularly hard. To, to set up an interview. And, and you know, I'll tell you the funny thing with this book is the more famous people in the book, once you got a few of them, others sort of wanted to... Because the premise of the book, you know, which is to me it's really important right now. Like, And, and it's not just happening with film. It's happening... Uh, in, in the, the People talk about globalization, but they talk about 
usually it's talked about in terms of economics and things like branding and outsourcing and things like that. But the globalization of culture that I talked about earlier is also happening in a big way. And it's happening with music. It's happening with mu- films. It's happening with publishing. It's happening with so many things. And, and uh, you know, the corporatization of these things and the globalization of them. And I think that in my book talks specifically about film, but it's happening with culture in general. And I think that there's a real feeling right now that, you know, there's something's amiss with this and that it's important to sort of step outside of this corporate control of of things and create real culture and create real alternatives. And that feeling is as strong in movies as it is in music. And that was the premise of the book, to talk about that. And so I think that once people you know, saw that premise, They th- it resonated with a lot of well-known filmmakers. And once I had a few filmmakers, you know, once you have interviews with, uh, I don't know, Gus Van Zant, you know, who did Milk, or uh, Miranda July, who did uh, You and Me and Everyone We Know, or, you know, several of these filmmakers, once you have, and, and uh, you know, Mike Lee, the greatest, you know, the great British filmmaker, once you have a few of these people, other people Wanted, you know, we're very open to doing it. I found it. So uh, Woody was into it then. Well, you know, the Woody. Was or the did one, you do Woody through your province stories? Well, Woody was actually less. Uh, you know, I mean, the, all of the other interviews were one-on-one interviews. Woody was more like a group session where I talked to him and asked asked specific pointed questions. You know that were used, but he's not. Woody is not. Uh, let's just put it this way. Woody is not as accessible as most of the people would be in this book. One person you did speak to that isn't super famous, but kind of is really super famous for what he's done over the years, is the Rebel Without a Cause screenwriter, who lives in Seattle now? Yeah, Stuart Stern uh, wrote Rebel Without a Cause, and he talked a lot about the whole psychology of it, those, uh, and the background, uh, how he came up with those characters and whatnot. And the thing with Rebel... And he lives in Seattle. Yeah, he does live in Seattle, and Rebel Without a Cause, um, you know, it's an I- interesting thing, like... One of the th- areas I, I, I look at in the book is the whole concept of the role acting played in film. Like, I think what happened is, in the 1950s, if you look at older movies, the acting is very conventional and very stagey. In 1950s, there was an explosion of naturalistic acting. It happened with these method actors like Marlon Brando and James Dean in the U.S., but it also happened in the French New Wave and the Italian films that were being made at the time. And what happened was, and and a good example of this is Rebel Without a Cause, if you look at James Dean's performance there. And and, and Stuart Stern talked a lot about this as well, like the the significance of Rebel Without a Cause. Um, And, and, uh, you know, and the significance of that school of acting. And, And I think what happened is that acting, which changed acting in the 50s, the method actors like Brando and Dean, uh, changed the whole style of acting, enabled the rise of independent film I- I- a decade later because it was so naturalistic that it, it ena- and the whole idea of independent film is that it's raw and real and realistic and uh, powerful and and so the emergence of that naturalistic acting in the fifties created that and so that was sort of what I was talking about with Rebel Without a Cause because Stern was really um, a very interesting guy, you know. Because uh, a lot of his own life goes into that. I mean, for example, he was as a kid, he saw the play Peter's Pan, and he was completely fascinated with it. And if you think to the Rebel Without a Cause story, a lot of it's drawn directly from Peter Pan and the Lost Boys and whatnot. He has these lost, lost group of of uh, alienated 
teenagers in the 1950s, but it's actually drawn from the whole Peter Pan story as he explained it to me. But yeah, so yeah, he was great. You talk a little bit about studio movies being bad. Have studio movies always been bad, at least post-World War II? Well, let's just put it this way. Notice I say post-World War II. Well, you know what I would say? I would say that it's like uh, commercial music. You know, there are moments when someone who's talented is able to make movies within the system. But I think the history of good films is essentially a history of films made outside the status quo, just like a history of good music is largely. And I think what happens is there are moments in history where uh, the studios have made good movies, almost in spite of themselves. Uh, One is the period before the blacklist. A lot of those blacklisted writers that I talked about before and directors were able to come over, you know, participate in everything from the Wizard of Oz to Casablanca before they were sent into exile. Another period was the early 1970s. And the reason that period existed is because Easy Rider was a huge hit. And so the guys who ran the studios looked at that movie and said, man, there must be a massive counterculture hippie audience out there. So they gave the green light to a whole bunch of directors for the next few years who made all sorts of movies like, you know, uh, The Godfather. And, and things like that. You know, there was this whole group of directors who emerged because of this, the counterculture. And they wouldn't have existed without that, without the studios thinking they had this huge audience. And, and that movement ended in the late 70s when Jaws and Star Wars arrived. And, and they said, well, we'd rather make blockbusters than hippie movies. They make more money. And they got rid of that, that group of maverick filmmakers. But there have been periods, though, when... People have been able to make good films within the studio system. And even now, the occasional, and it's very, very rare, but the occasional filmmaker has enough clout to be able to make, get studio funding and make, make a movie. I mean, like the Coen brothers might be able to do that from time to time as an example. But it's so rare that it's, it's practically non-existent. David Spanner, author of Shoot It, Hollywood Inc., and The Rising of Independent Film, which tonight will be profiled at the Chan Center in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, right? For free, 7 p.m., with Bruce Sweeney's live bait. You speak a lot about the blacklist. I was thinking, the Cossacks are coming. The Cossacks are coming. Did McCarthy find any Reds? Was one Red ever found with all this witch hunting? Oh, oh, yeah. I, I mean, it, w- w- it depends on what you're talking about in terms of... Uh, Did they go for fascists, too? Uh, no, they didn't. They just went for leftists. Uh, I, I think what happened is is that up until uh, the end of the Second World War, there actually was a left in the United States. I mean, there actually was a socialist movement in the United States. And then the, the, this whole sort of McCarthyism and this whole witch hunt, what it did was it vilified those people so that that word became almost like synonymous with being a criminal in the United States, you know, by the end of the 1950s. And once they'd done in the word socialist, then they turned on the word liberal, which they kind of got rid of too. That sort of almost became subversive down there. And now... Uh, you know, the people call themselves progressives there. But I think what happened was there actually was a big left in the United States. There was a big communist movement in the 1930s. And there was, uh, you know, a lot of socialists. And and a lot of these people in Hollywood don't deny that, that they were leftists or reds or whatever you want to call them. And so when you say, did they actually find them? Certainly a lot of these people were leftists. I, I, I don't think they ever denied it. They were actually kind of proud of it. So it's not like McCarthy himself... Uh, was a bit different because, I mean, he was primarily aimed at uh, McCarthyism. He was primarily aimed at so-called reds within uh, the U.S. government. 
uh, and and his he was totally off the wall. A lot of his accusations. So I don't know who he found or didn't find. But I think a lot of the people who were blacklisted, and it wasn't just in Hollywood. It was like just the guys who worked. You know, it was teachers and doctors and whatnot during that period. And of course, a lot of them actually were leftists. I mean, the Communist Party in the 1930s was a mass movement that was doing things like organizing unions and fighting fascists in the streets and in Spain and uh, fighting against racism. And the people who joined weren't enamored with any idea of dictatorship. I mean, that's what weren't what they were thinking about, oh, that they wanted to create dictatorship. It was a totally different... You have to understand at that time, it was a mass movement. And so a lot of these people who were later attacked as Reds had certainly been in that movement. So, uh, yeah, so in answer to your question, yeah, a lot of these people had been Reds. David Spanner, author of Shoot It, Hollywood, Inc., and The Rising of Independent Film, winding up here, wanted to ask you about Henry Jaglom and the parties at Jane Fonda's house with the birds. That sounds amazing. Well, Henry Jaglom is a great independent, American independent filmmaker, um, and he started, he, he grew up in New York, but came out, he was an actor first. A lot of the better directors were actors first. I interviewed him in L.A., uh, where he lives now, and he told this great story about, uh, you know, he tells this great story about his first day in L.A. He co- had come out from New York, and he knew Tuesday Weld, who the actress, and so she took him along to this party at Jane Fonda's house, and it was down in Malibu. And it was one of the, it's a, later it became a legendary party because what it was was a mix of the old Hollywood and the new Hollywood. I mean, there were people like Henry Fonda and Jimmy Stewart and all these people at this party. But there were also all these people like, uh, you know, Jane Fonda and her friends there and, and rock bands there and counterculture people there. And so it was this massive party. And at the height of the party, um, he goes out with a, uh, what, what it was is I think he borrows Tuesday's Wells car to go for a ride for whatever reason, gets stoned uh, with, with, a, with a couple of other people, three of them in the car, and they're driving down the Pacific Coast Highway, and the car stalls. And this is like, you know, it's party. He's just dri- driven off, and it stops in the middle of the highway, and they look up and they see this car speeding towards them. And they're stoned out of their heads. They're stalled in the middle of the highway in Tuesday Weld's car. And, and this car is speeding towards the, their car. And it looks like it's going to be a massive collision. And just, and, they, and they're, you know, freaking out in the car. And just as it's about to collide with them, it stops. Like literally like half an inch from Henry Jaglum's door. So that's how that party ended for him. Also, you mentioned about Punishment Park, which is interesting because MIA's Born Free video is apparently based a little bit on that. What can you say about Punishment Park, David Spanner? Well, Punishment Park is a uh, maybe the most authentic movie about the counterculture, the hippie counterculture. What that was, it was by a British filmmaker named Peter Watkins. And um, the story is that... This is at the height of the whole hip counterculture, like 1970, uh, right after there'd been this big trial in Chicago of people who had been charged with inciting a riot at the Democratic Convention there. And there was a huge new left, counterculture left in the U.S. at the time. And 
so the story that he, that he concocted was this, is that America's become a fascist country. These big tribunals are happening. And if you're found guilty, you have two choices. You can either go to jail or you can try to make your way across the punishment park, which was this desert. And I think he had like 24 hours or 48 hours to get across it. And there were all sorts of obstacles, including like armed soldiers and National Guard, whatever, in this, in this desert. And if you could get past everything in a designated time, you were free. And so what happened was in casting the, for these tribunals and for this, this move across the desert, uh, what happened was he, um, this guy Peter Watkins actually advertised in L.A. papers for actual hippies and new leftists and actual rednecks. And he brought them all together at this dumpy little hotel in this desert town and stuck them all together for uh, uh, weeks, you know, to make this movie. And so in real life, they hated each other. They were uh, had to hang out at the same restaurant, th- these two groups, and they were getting on each other's nerves. And so when they finally shot this movie, shot these tribunal scenes in which these rednecks were, you know, um, questioning the these hippies, I mean, it was like explosive. I mean, it was like these guys were like uh, going at each other. You know, almost you know violently. You know, it was it was just an absolutely wild movie that's worth taking a look at. It's called Punishment Park. David Spanner, author of Shoot It, Hollywood Inc., and the Rising of Independent Film, Killer of Sheep, and Serge Bozon, who's into punk. Serge Bozon. Uh, right now, the the French have had a huge played a huge role in the history of independent film. Huge role. Their, their new wave that came out. America was in the doldrums. It's filmmaking, late 50s, early 60s. And the French came up with this amazing, magical, uh, innovative scene with people like Francois Truffaut and Godard. And it really influenced film around the world. It actually almost created the template for independent filmmaking. And so uh, France has just had, always had tremendous talent and and there's a young scene there now that i discovered i was in france talking to filmmakers and there's a young scene of great independent filmmakers uh and serge bozon is one of them axel roper is another and you know he's also heavily influenced by punk and and do it yourself the one thing i want to really stress because you know in terms of the connection between music and film is probably the most overt connection would have been the new york uh movie scene of the 19. 80s and 90s. What happened there is there was a bunch of young filmmakers or or future filmmakers attending NYU at the time. And this is just when punk was really happening in New York. This is people like Tom DeCillo and Susan Seidelman who did Desperately Seeking Susan and Smithereens and Jim Jarmusch. Uh, and they were huge fans of this punk scene. And they would hang out when they weren't at school, they'd hang out at the punk scene. And the whole do-it-yourself ethos of that punk scene hugely affected their filmmaking. And so, before long, they were you know, making real cheap do-it-yourself films, shooting them off walls and bars, screening them. And, and it created this great, innovative, punky film scene in New York, which later influenced independent film all over the world. Killer of Sheep? Killer of Sheep is Charles Burnett, who's this great black filmmaker in, uh, from Los Angeles, who grew up in Watts, uh, went to UCLA, uh, determined to make films outside the system, did this great movie called Killer of Sheep, which is about this guy who works in a slaughterhouse and lives in, in, in uh, 
you know, Watts or South Central L.A. And, and the thing with him is the thing that was so great about this movie is that at the time, the, the, the black Americans were depicted in such cliched ways that to have a film like this, it, I mean, it just create it, it was it, it's a wonderful film that if you can ever see it, just rent it, you know, it's killer shape. It just shows this guy, this working class guy and his life and his relationship with his kids and, and his wife and his neighbors. And it's just a, a powerful, honest portrayal of, of the black community in 1970s America. And Charles Burnett's a great filmmaker, but he's one of these guys who's never really been appreciated by the studio system. And, and that movie actually was made back in the early 70s and didn't really get its released until the 21st century because the music in it, they could never really afford to buy the rights to the music in it. And I believe it was Steven Soder, uh, Soderbergh who was such a fan of the movie that actually paid the rights to that, and it was it finally got a limited release a few years ago. David Spanner, author of Shoot It, Hollywood, Inc., and The Rising of Independent Film. Where can people get your book? Well, you know, you can get it at bookstores around town, co-op bookstore, bigger bookstores. You can also get it on Amazon. Um, you know, uh, or you can come tonight. I'm going to be signing copies of it tonight. You can uh, buy it at 7 o'clock. At the Chan Center uh, here at, at the UBC. Chan Center. And a movie will be shown, too, as well. The movie's going to be shown there. It's going to be fantastic. Bait. Yeah, Live Bait, which Legendary. is one of the best Canadian films ever made. It's by Bruce Sweeney, great Canadian filmmaker. That's on. Uh, and so, you know, you can come and see that and uh, get a book there. Or if you can't make it, like I say, you can pick it up on Amazon. David Spanner, how about your book? Could it be used for a university class? Like, it has footnotes and stuff. Uh, yeah, it does have footnotes and stuff. Um, you know, funny, th- funny thing you mentioned that. It's actually been, uh, there's, uh, there's various university film studies programs that are actually looking at it right now. And, and uh, you know, there's a good chance that some universities are going to pick it up. Uh, you know, it's interesting. I didn't realize this. The, the U.S. publicist was telling me, because she's been doing outreach to universities down there, that there's all sorts of film studies classes with names like the globalization of film and, and the corporatization of the studio system and things like that. So, I mean, there's a, a real interest in the subject matter of this book. Have there been other books like Shoot It? I don't think so, really. You know, I don't like to think there has. I mean, there's other books I like about film, and there's been other books, uh, you know, Did about... you want to make it longer at all? Since there hadn't been a book like it, did you want to make the book longer? Well, it's interesting you say that, because the original draft was considerably longer. But the publisher felt, you know, it had to be edited to a certain size, so I did cut it back. And, you know, uh, I, I think, you know, it works at this uh, length. But... Um, you know, I, 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 yeah, yeah, it's true. The original version was a bit longer, I, I must say. Um, as far as another book like it, I mean, there's some really great books on film uh, about all sorts of different subjects. But as far as this specific topic, uh, in terms of, yeah, I, you know, I think it's, I think it's kind of unique. David Spanner, lastly, lastly here, I want to ask about Five Easy Pieces. That was filmed in British Columbia, wasn't uh, it? Partially. Uh, Whereabouts? Easy- on Vancouver okay, Island? Okay, here's the, the deal with that one. Is five Easy Pieces is part of that new Hollywood move- movement I talked about that came along in the late 60s, early 70s in the wake of the counterculture. Uh, uh, directed by someone named Bob Rafelson, starred uh, Jack Nicholson. Uh, one of the better films of that whole era. And... Uh, it was shot in the U.S. West Coast, Northwest, but it was also shot in part on Vancouver Island. You know, 
Uh, I don't know exactly which scenes were shot there, but it, yeah, it, uh, you know, uh, the funny thing is, is probably the best American movies ever shot in Vancouver were shot back then, shot in BC. Five Easy Pieces, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, Carnal Knowledge, part of that whole new Hollywood counterculture filmmaking scene. Like Robert Altman came up here to shoot McCabe and Mrs. Miller, Mike Nichols. Uh, in that case, Bob Rafelson. So there were some great movies that were shot here then, and and uh, yeah, Five Easy Pieces in part was shot on Vancouver Island. David Spanner, George Carlin helped you out? Uh, well, I'll tell you a story on that, is that I was in the New York Yippies for a while. I went, I went out there, and I was working the National Yippie newspaper in the early 1970s. And um, at the time... The Yippies were organizing a protest against Richard Nixon, an impeach Nixon rally, smoke-in in Washington, D.C., and the theme of it was smoke out Nixon. Um, and, and, and we were trying to get various people to perform at it, and George Carlin at the time was considered like the ultimate counterculture lefty comedian. And we had been trying to... Con- he was one of the guys we had talked about contacting, and I happened to be walking down... Uh, I I think it was Fifth Avenue in New York. No, driving down. I was driving down Fifth Avenue in New York, and I saw George Carlin walking there. He was a New Yorker. And so I pulled my car over, jumped out, and I started talking to him about the possibility of him playing this event that we were organizing. And we were talking about it, and just then we looked over, and and this cop was, was putting a ticket on the car that I'd pulled over. And Carlin walked over to the cop and said, ah, you don't want to do that. And he And he started going on and on, and he talked the cop, out of giving me a parking ticket. Uh, he declined as far as uh, uh, appearing at the event. He, he had other things he, he, was, uh, he was doing, but, but he did save me uh, the price of a New York City traffic ticket. And so I do owe that to George Carlin. David Spanner, the author of Shoot It! Hollywood Inc. and The Rising of Independent Film. And we're going to end right here now with something by the Epoxies from Portland, Oregon, covering the professionals, doing Join the Professionals, which, of course, was from the Ladies and Gentlemen, the right. Fabulous Stains movie shot in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and then hopefully going to be able to play something by The Subhumans, a band that you managed for their entire career. Right, David? Their uh, entire career. Uh, not at the very beginning, for mo- but most of it. And it's a song called Celebrity, right? And it's off new recordings by the uh, Yeah, I think this is a real uh, applicable song because, you know, it, it's talking about the whole, uh, you know, phoniness of the whole celebrity culture and whatnot, which certainly applies to studio film as well as music and every other aspect of Western culture these days. And it's a very good song. It's by Mike Graham. So tonight in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, 7 p.m. at the Chan Center, David Spanner will be there reading from his brand new book, and also Bruce Sprini will be there as well, screening his movie for free at the Chan Center. That's true, that's true. Anything else you want to add to the people out there at all? Uh, just that, you know, I'm, I'm really actually pleased to be able to do this event with Bruce Sweeney and Tom Schultz tonight because they're as good as it gets when it comes to Canadian film. Like, Tom's a terrific actor. He's a prof out here now. He's going to be moderating the event. He stars in the film uh, Live Bait. Uh, 17 years ago, he started it. Um, and uh, Bruce is, is a really fine director, you know, and this film is this great anti-romantic comedy that really uses... Uh, Vancouver, the way Woody Allen uses New York or Truffaut used Paris, really, you know, Vancouver's almost a character in the film. It's really a part of the film, Vancouver and UBC. And David Spanner, why should people care about Shoot It, Hollywood Inc., and the rising of independent film? Why should people care about it? Well, I think, you know, people should... 
understand that uh, their rights are being uh, denied by the whole corporate culture that's around them, their accessibility to seeing real local human uh, expression. And I think that it's happening in film, it's happening in music, it's happening in all aspects of culture. And I think what I'm trying to do with Shoot It is shine a light on that. And I think it's an important subject. Well, thanks much, David Spanner. Keep on rocking in the free world and do 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 do. Right here on News 101. Right here on News 101. 
What motivated you to become a candidate in the provincial election? The media portrayal of last week's protest that resulted in polarizing images of black-clad activists taking to the streets. He was just explaining to us the reason why they wanted to show this film on campus. The official stance is that we are for the Olympics. News 101 reporter Brad Pepping was there. By discriminating against homeless people in Vancouver, there's a disproportionate impact on Aboriginal people as well as people with disabilities. I was pretty outraged. I mean, it's, it is outrageous. In-depth coverage from an alternative perspective. You're listening to News 101, Vancouver's only live, volunteer-produced, student and community newscast offering you local, national and international news from an alternative perspective. Today is Friday, March 30th. I'm Claire Eagle. And I'm Iqbal Ahmed. You're listening to News 101 on CITR 11.9 FM. Broadcasting to you live from the University of British Columbia, to our campus, to the residents of Vancouver, and to listeners of our newscast and podcast on our website, citr.ca. Good evening. It's 5.02 p.m. and time for another full hour of independent news. Our headlines will cover news from the UBC campus, local news from Metro Vancouver, provincial and federal news from across Canada, as well as news from around the world. We will also be talking to Iglika Ivanova from the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives for comments on the new federal budget released yesterday. All this plus your weekend weather forecast right here on News 101, your source for independent news, and now for your UBC campus news and your local headlines. A recent UBC research study has shown some surprising results about coffee 